Okay, hi everyone. Uh, welcome to Netris uh, Roundtable. Um, today, Kelsey uh, Itower and myself, Alex Soroyan, will, uh, will be answering uh, your questions about uh, technical trends in 2023 and predictions for 2024. Man, you all excited? It's 2024. Right. We'll, we'll repeat history. I'm pretty sure it's going to rhyme. Look, I'll kick things off. Look, I recently retired in July. I set my retirement date for uh, the 4th of July, but I thought it was going to be tongue-in-cheek to retire on Independence Day. Uh, <laughs> so I did that Friday instead. And when you retire at least for me, I realized that you don't really just stop working. You just end up working for yourself. But there was a lot of reflection that last couple of months at Google, especially being in cloud, you see lots of things. You see a lot of customers that approach you wanting to do something different. Whether they really need to do something different or not is different than them wanting to do something different. And there was a lot of trends in that help us be better than we currently are. And another thing that I realized over that seven, eight years at Google was anytime we release some new technology, the number one thing most enterprise customers wanted us to do was to make the new thing work the old way. That was the number one trend. <laughs> if we came out with BigQuery, people wanted it to feel more like Oracle, right? Hey, I'm used to certain data types, certain query languages, certain packages to run reports, make all of that stuff work. And so I think a lot of sign of maturity, at least enterprise maturity, was essentially doing that. And so this is why now, 2024, most of the cloud providers look the same in terms of their core offerings because it's the same customer pool, all asking for the same features and everything starts to converge before we get permission to split off again, right? So when I talk about some of these trends and what I think the predictions are, only because what's the famous saying? it's easy to predict the future when you're working on it, right? So a lot of people that are just casual observers just look at the world moving by and things happen to them. So they're always surprised by the future. But I think when you're in the trenches of it all and you're actually fixing the bugs, building those particular features, then you are essentially creating the future. So then I think it's easier to be a little bit more accurate, at least in the short term. Long term, everybody's guessing. Short term, I think the trajectory is already here. People submitted a few questions too. So I'm gonna to get to those. I think we got about maybe eight or nine of those, but we're also gonna to try to keep this very open form, right? So this is a round table. If you have real questions or concerns, like just express them uh, for transparency. I'm an advisor to Netris. I've been working with them for about a year and a half. I work with companies like Docker, Vercel, UNAI, which is an ML ops platform, uh, the company behind Argo CD. I've been doing the tech advisory stuff for a very long time. Uh, mainly because I just have a knack for building products and taking them to market. And so I still continue that in, uh, even in retirement. So I'm always happy to partner with Alex in this, in this world of networking. My networking background is interesting because I used to work in enterprises and then I worked at Puppet Labs, right? This company that does configuration management. Around 2012, I was a software engineer there. And one of the projects we had was putting the Puppet agent that you use for configuration management on Juniper network networking gear. And luckily for us, Juniper is based on like BSD, runtime environment. And we were able to get this Ruby-based agent on the actual device. And then we were able to treat it like any other node in the network and we could program it. 
And so then we just started thinking, what would configuration management be like in the world of networking? But in order to do that, I had to learn the traditional Juniper way of doing things, all the command line tools, backup, save, provisioning, the whole nine, just so we can get it to work. But luckily I did that in 2012 because it really prepared me for what happened in the Kubernetes world, where it tried to marry networking with the whole compute stack all in one big runtime. Layer three through layer seven is incorporated in Kubernetes. So that networking experience paid off big time because I was one of the people who helped design and build the container networking interface that you find as the plugin system of Kubernetes today. So that 10 year cycle came full circle and it's just obvious to work with a company like Netris that's trying to be bring the VPC from the cloud on-prem. So I'll kick off like some of the trends that I saw when leaving GCP. Uh, the number one trend was that cloud was coming to on-prem. I was super surprised that Google would ever try to bring their core services on-prem. The first approach maybe five years ago was to take some of our best services like Kubernetes Engine, which was the container runtime, and shrink it down to run on-prem, that didn't do very well because it turns out this is not a software-only solution. I think VMware figured that out a long time ago. We ignored that learning and just thought we could give people Kubernetes in a, you know, in a package and it will be fine. That did not work at all. Most people wanted like reference architectures or they were very confused about how to integrate everything else. And so the trend, at least when I left from 2023, was that it's inevitable. Private regions where if you're like a particular government entity, you are going to get your own private region. That is fully in effect. It may not be available to you all, but that is going to happen for sovereign reasons and will probably be managed by local citizens. That's that's a trend that I expect to continue. You saw that with um, Amazon having their own kind of hardware that you could install on-premise. Oracle had already been doing this with the purchase of some microsystems. But I do think what we call the cloud will get diluted away. So there was a question that we got around cloud reportation where people are moving out of the cloud on-prem. It's less of that, and it's more about these two worlds converging, right? There's really no reason why they should have been thought about separately anyway, but a lot of the technologies that we use in the cloud have made their way on-prem thanks to open source. That's the first big trend, the merging of these two worlds into one. And for some people that means I don't need multiple regions or cloud services. I'm just going to use some of the same APIs on prem. I'm going to stop there with that one particular trend because I know it was a question. If anyone wants to dig deeper, we can go round table style. Maybe someone could talk about that they're doing that, or maybe you have more questions that I can give more nuance and insight on to talk about that one particular trend before we move on to the next. I see a question in chat, so I'll answer it, but also I'll welcome people uh, to unmute yourself, introduce yourself, and ask your question. So I'm going to do the question on chat. I think this is from uh, Chaitin. Oh, if I got that right, uh, Chaitin. Kelsey, would you term that as hybrid cloud growth? I hate hybrid cloud. When you say hybrid cloud, it just creates more confusion than anything. There is no hybrid anything. There's only multiple data centers. You got your data center, either it's yours or you're renting it from someone. That's all there is, ping, pipe, and power. On your data center, you may choose to buy hardware from Dell. You rack and stack it, get you some top of rack switches, install VMware on that thing, and present it to your users. Look, that's pretty good. Some people, that's all they actually need. It's just a good API to create some VMs and put it behind F5. You are done. 
it will work. It does work. The cloud is slightly differently because we do exactly the same thing. Maybe the hardware, I used to work in a Google data center a long time ago. So this was my second trip back to Google. And yeah, we rack and stack servers just like everyone else. We buy memory and CPU and networking gear just like everyone else. Sometimes we make it ourselves. And then we install Linux on it to create the cloud, the thing with billing, the web UI, the command line tools, the SDKs. That's the big difference between cloud providers and on-prem. We don't stop with just a hypervisor and leaking that to our communities. No, we have to put something that is truly self-service because there's no way we could support and handhold every customer. That's where on-prem and cloud diverged, mainly from a UX perspective. But most of this stuff is truly, truly the same. So when I think about hypercloud or hy hybrid cloud, it's more about bridging two networks. Right. We don't say hybrid vendors because I bought VMware, Dell, Oracle, and Juniper. Like that's not what we say, right? We just typically connect these things through Ethernet cables and log in and connect the dots as we need. The cloud should be no different. So I think what people are realizing is that once you get your networking in order, that gives you the ability to use whatever service you want. So if it's in the same rack, okay your Ethernet cable or VLAN away from talking to the Oracle database. All right, we know how to do that. Except for that IP address and VLAN just happens to be called direct connect in the cloud. Like what's the real difference here other than where that thing lives and who manages it? So it's less about hybrid cloud. I think it's a maturity on both ends. Maturity of the cloud provider realizing that they don't cover all the use cases well, and there is a need to bring things where the data is. That's just computer science 101. And then on the other side of that equation, just customers realizing that you can't keep managing everything in a spreadsheet. It's not going to, what are you doing? And everything isn't for sale that you want to do. So you may actually have to use a third-party service, just like you do with PayPal and Stripe. Some computing services will also be over the wire. That's really what we're talking about. So the less we say hybrid cloud, and the more we say things like bridging the networks or using common protocols in two places, the faster we get to where we want to be. Yeah, thanks, Kelsey. I'll just quickly introduce myself. My name is Chintan. I asked you the question about the hybrid cloud, and I, I totally get it. Uh, all this terminology crept in since I was in the Gartner Infrastructure and Operations Conference, and they have a term for every single thing. And I was like, okay, are people take, talking in this lingo, and who better to ask than Kelsey himself? You know, he was just in the middle of all these things, and he would know. So thank you for responding, yeah. So one trend we saw already, you know, Thomas Kirian, the CEO of, of Google Cloud, he was a big PM over at, at Oracle, some say number two in, in line with Larry Ellison. And one thing he announced earlier this year was Google was going to end uh, egress networking fees when you want to leave GCP. And a lot of people look at that as like, oh, they're going to shut down GCP. It's like, what the hell? That, how do you correlate those two? It doesn't make any sense. When I used to negotiate some of the larger deals, even from an engineering capacity, a lot of people were really worried. What happens if you put a zettabyte of data in GCP? You can't get it out. The cost, just doing the back of the napkin cost to egress the data somewhere else would ruin you, right? The other strategy was to physically do it, right? Get your data into physical devices and have it shipped to another place. And so what Google tried to do was lower that fear, right? If you're doing risk analysis, you guys probably are running tech teams and doing enterprise uh, planning and strategy. No one wants to dump data in one place and then have a hard time getting it back out. So they just remove that fear. One thing I used to tell customers, they used to ask me this one question. 
if you could change one thing about cloud from a customer perspective, what would it be? If I was a customer, I would be advocating getting rid of ingress and egress networking charges. Imagine a world that by law, universal law, that all networking had to have zero cost between zones and regions and between cloud providers. It would change the way we thought about multi-cloud and hybrid cloud because you wouldn't have the fear of networking standing in between making the best decision. And so when I see Google make this decision that they're going to eliminate egress, you know what they're going to do. They're going to force Amazon and Azure to do the same thing, meaning not only is it easier and cheaper to leave GCP, it will be easier and cheaper to leave Azure going in the other direction. So this is a well-calculated thing, but this just highlights how important the network still is in this whole equation. Makes sense. Thank you. Will, will that come at the expense of uh, increasing uh, prices on other services? I mean, honestly, if you think about YouTube bandwidth alone, all the cloud bandwidth is a rounding error. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's probably, I, I don't know the details, but you just imagine YouTube video streaming mm -hmm. and compare it to all other network use cases. I, I don't even think it's a, a thing that's where, it, you know, it's a definitely a thing that contributes to margin. And so, you know, maybe the margin goes away there. But if I'm in GCP and Azure follows suit here, because, you know, the cloud providers tend to follow each other on pricing, whether it goes up or down. And so if Azure has to follow suit to be competitive, this is good for my business. One net win, a big customer net win from Azure to me makes up for this entire thing. So I don't know. I think it's one of these things where it's just good business, especially if you're not the number one cloud provider. Uh I, I think I think YouTube is 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 doing uh, also so like in in addition to their infrastructure they also are are have this really smart strategy where where they kind of let uh, uh, internet providers to host local uh, YouTube caches uh, that way they are sort of offloading some of the uh, uh, some of the bandwidth to to local internet providers and that's beneficial both for the local provider because they're not buying that bandwidth from their upstream and it's also good for YouTube because they're offloading their servers and it's great for customers because they are getting better uh, user experience. So kind of like CDN before CDN even, even was a thing. But also uh, if you think about how cloud providers are co-located very close to each other to begin with. Right, like these data centers and regions are strategically located not too far from each other. So, what's the interconnect between those two hops? Like, so I don't know, man. I think more than ever, this is possible now. And if Cloudflare can do this stuff pretty cheap, I'm pretty sure cloud providers can too. Yep. Uh, uh, yeah. That, but uh, there are lots of networking techniques which are awesome and really cost-effective. As they are, they are just complex for most teams <laughs> when when you make things like this accessible and easier to consume i mean more more companies can take benefit of that uh looks like we have Eric. a question Eric, if you want to unmute yourself and ask this question live that would be dope yeah hi everyone so in context of merging the on-prem and cloud so lots of starting company startups enjoy the possibility to 
possibility of elasticity, they can pay less when when the requests on web service or something are, are really low. So they, they, they don't buy expensive hardware, which they can't afford. So that's that's where the main beauty of clouds are, are coming, right? So if you move that on-prem, you need to buy more hardware, hardware than you need all the time. So what's what's in the middle of the cloud and on-prem? How can you, how would you solve that problem so that you don't overpay for the compute resource resources where you don't need it and still have enough resources? I think this is the the illusion of scale and time. The number of companies that I've met that is doing this in real time, just kind of bursting to the cloud and back on-prem, is a big fat zero. Like maybe there's someone doing this, but there is no. This is not the norm. By this is some fantasy some people have. Engineers, if you're just doing engineering, your customer base is not usually that dynamic. If you're Shopify, you can kind of see it in seasonal shopping and campaigns that you tend to launch. Uh, the gaming industry is where I saw it the most. Like if you launch a game, you have no idea what the number of net new players they're going to play online could be. So. Pokemon Go is a good case study and like you plan for like, I don't know, a million users and then you get 300 million instead. Yeah, on prem you're dead, right? You can't solve that problem quickly. So that's the time piece. So cloud is always good for I don't know. Most businesses aren't that though. Most businesses, you're an insurance company. You got like 500,000 customers. On a good day, you'll get maybe two more thousand. That's it. And so in those cases, you can do some over-provisioning in the cloud. It's not a dirty word. There's a way you do it. There's a way you negotiate your discounts appropriately. The problem with the cloud is it penalizes you for wasting more so than on-prem. Right? On-prem, if you waste, it's whatever. Go buy the biggest hardware you can afford and get five years out of it. You'll probably win overall. There was a Twitter space that I did a couple of weeks ago with DHH. You know, it works at a company called Basecamp and they have a bunch of services and they documented their journey leaving the cloud. And we did about a three hour Twitter space about this. And he has all the data to show after one year, they literally did save a lot of cash. Uh, the same size team that they had in the cloud, they were born in the cloud. Uh, but through economics of their SaaS product, their customer growth is predictable. And so they're able to save, I think so far, 150K a month in real savings and net savings that they can actually attribute uh, to moving on-prem and for their SaaS business, it meant a lot for them, right? There's probably going to be bigger savings over time. So that's possible. But I think for most companies, it's not about elasticity. It's about just literally the case of, can I just build my apps in a way that I can run them wherever I want? That's it. If you want to run it on Azure, then run it on Azure. If you want to run it on-prem, then run it on-prem. So before we even get to this elasticity, <clears throat> magical wishful thinking, just get to the basics. If I have an app, that's packaged for RPM for Red Hat. I do yum install on VMware locally. Why can't I do yum install on an Azure VM? To my surprise, the majority of companies can't do that. Oh, I can't do that because we hard code the IP addresses for apps. And so if it doesn't get exactly this IP address, it, it falls apart for some reason. We're not even there yet. <laughs> so this elasticity piece is there if you understand how computers work. Whether you talk about cloud or not, just having two physical data centers that are your own between two different parts of the country, you can do that if you know what you're doing. So cloud just adds another destination 
if you have the maturity to pull that off. Most people don't have that maturity to pull that off, right? It's just a little checkbox that no one really does in reality. Uh, I'd like to add, add, add a little bit on top of that. So from, from our experience of working uh, different customers, uh, mainly who were born in the cloud, which was a great decision for them to start their business in the cloud when they were early, they didn't know whether they need, needed two EC2 instances or 1,000 EC2 instances. So that was a great start for them. And then over time, uh, when, when, they're, when they figured out their pro product, the product market fit, and then uh, started to, to go into growth phase, they figured that, okay, this cloud uh, economics not not going to scale. So they figured, okay, now when we, we figured our business model, now it's time to uh, optimize our infrastructure for cost. So they started comparing running AWS versus running physical data center. And it's, uh, th there's, a, there's a slight nuance because it's, it's a matter of how, how large is your infrastructure footprint. Uh, if, you're, if your physical data center compared to your public cloud is going to be like two servers, 10 servers, anywhere between two to 10 servers, you are better off uh, renting your servers, basically using services like Equinix Metal or Phoenix Snap, Bare Metal Cloud, renting your servers elasti uh, elastically. If, you're, if, you, if your data center footprint is going to be over 20, 30, 40, or, or if it's hundreds or thousands of servers, you're, you're better off uh, renting just a space with a, with a data center provider and, and actually buying uh, all the hardware. Um, now, now, to Kelsey's point, everything is cloud. Well, there's traditional uh, traditional on-prem data center approach and there's cloud approach. Of course, if you, if you think in terms of data center uh, with a traditional approach, that's going to be hard for you if you're coming from the cloud because it's like two different, uh, two different user experiences. But if you use uh, modern technologies, which Netris is one of these technologies, but there's more. There's amazing technologies like Harvester, like Rancher and many others. So when you when you leverage this kind of modern cloud native technologies, you turn your bare metal provider environment or your physical data center environment into cloud, and it's there's no much of a difference between your AWS and your own cloud. Now you can run your static load in physical data center. You can kind of pre-commit to certain uh, bandwidth and then run all your excessive load in the cloud because two environments look and feel very much similar. Now you can kind of manage your, your workloads, where to run which. There's, there's a part of this conversation where I was on site with a customer and someone that was in the networking team asked, what do we do from a skills perspective? And I thought about it for a second. I said, listen, if, you, if you're just being honest, have you scaled up in the last decade? Just, just like look in the mirror and be honest. And they're like, nah, not really. I got my CCIE. I buy from Cisco. I do my updates and I turn the knobs. 
And as long as the packets flow, we're good. I'm done. Great. That works. Some, that's sometimes that's what all a company needs. When the cloud shows up, the cloud has to compete, actually, because there's competition. And so if I want to go use a service in the cloud, I'm not going to be talking about VLANs and IP addresses. It just, it's not appealing to me from a consumer. I want to just launch a VM and just have networks start flowing to it as easy as possible. If I'm a software developer, I want to attach my application safely to the internet and allow approved traffic to come to that app. But that's it. That's all, all you really want to do because it's already hard enough to write the code, let alone figure out all this other stuff. So on-prem, the experience tends to be, hey, uh, make a request to do that. Tell us what port you want. We might get you an SSL certificate. We got to get that approved. Uh, if you need an IP, we'll allocate you an IP, like one private IP. I'm going to put it on a spreadsheet. And then on Thursday, we're going to try to configure all the firewalls. We don't even remember how many we have. But we're going to try to make sure that we get it right and that that IP can move traffic. Friday comes, it doesn't work. You're like, hey, man, <laughs> I see the IP on the server, but I'm not getting any traffic. It's like, oh, my bad. We missed the checkpoint. Try it now. That's the experience. And so when people say cloud, sometimes they're saying, I don't want that experience. I don't want to be talking about spreadsheets. I don't want to talk about checkpoint. Just don't want to talk about it. I just want to have safe traffic come to the app. And so when you say on-prem, a lot of people are just saying, I'm not interested in competing on the experience front. It works, and we have our process deal with it. And so I think that's the part that has to change. So when I started working with Alex, you know, the first thing I thought was like, oh, this is just another SDN thing. I, I hate those, software-defined networking. What does that even mean? Like, you want me to program the same functionality into the gear? I, who wants to do that? That doesn't make any sense. I can see the benefit to a switch manufacturer who wants flexibility between decoupling the software from the hardware. That, that makes sense. But I don't care about those low-level primitives. So I was like, look, Alex, I think it would be much better if the number one core primitive was VPC. If I could take all the networking gear and suck it into this control plane, and then as a network engineer, I know about BGP, subnets, VLANs, upstream, downstream, link, and spike. I know all of that. I'll encapsulate that into the system. That's what the Google engineers do. But guess what we present to customers? We present VPCs. And so when the other person sees the other side of that, they see not Adromeda, which is Google's SDN. They see VPC. And so that means if I create a VM or some containers, you attach to the VPC. And that interface is much easier to deal with and it allows you to be flexible underneath the covers. And so that's the part where I say, when a network engineer looks at Netris, what do they see? You're not, I'm not talking about modernizing anything. I'm saying you can give a better abstraction to the people trying to consume the network than VLANs and IP addresses. That's the end game uh, for this scenario. I see another question in here from Chris. Uh, yeah. Chris, if you want to, if you're still on call, if you want to yourself, introduce yourself, maybe you want to ask this question? Sure. Yeah, just, and I realize I'm shifting gears here a little bit away from the cloud, but since, you know, you're well known in the open source space, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on 
I mentioned two two of the developments from 2023 in open source that seemed interesting to me. One is you know Red Hat's you know quote unquote decision to paywall its uh, source code. The other is just I guess open source in the generative AI space. I mean that's a whole topic unto itself. But you know I'm just curious where you see open source headed. Um, I mean you mentioned like open source tools going into the cloud, but any other thoughts on <laughs> open source's future? What we should look for? You know what? You brought up a really good trend for 2023. We also saw HashiCorp change their license mm -hmm. for things like Terraform, Vault, and all their tools. They went from MIT, hey, competitors, we don't care what you do with this thing, to whoa, whoa, whoa. If you're competing with us, that could be a cloud provider. It could be VMware. We don't want you using Terraform with its name intact to compete against us as we think about adding cloud value prop services to, or value add services to the mix. And that trend continues from like the Elastics changing their license so Amazon could not compete with them. And so in 2023, you saw a lot of people say, you know what? I don't know if we can give away all this software and expect you to pay for it. Most people only pay for things that they have to. And that trend piggybacks on the sustainability and open source trend. Like most people may not know this, but even Kubernetes struggles to get contributors. These are big projects that enterprises depend on. Everything from Postgres database to Log4j on the Java side. There are only a few handful of people who work on these things. So the sustainability has been a problem. And I think it's coming to a head. We saw that in 2023. So I think when you're Red Hat, you say, look, enough's enough. There is no way we can fund development across the ever-growing set of expectations for zero dollars in some cases. That's just not tenable. At least for me, when I used to manage open source projects, it's just not sustainable to work for free. I don't know how you pull it off. And so now I think what's gonna have to happen is enterprises that have been used to paying for this software are starting to realize that even if you pay for it, doesn't mean that you're paying for the community to stay intact. Paying for open source doesn't actually mean you control your own destiny either. People thought about it as a form of avoiding lock-in by paying for an open thing. But it turns out, just because it's open doesn't mean you don't get locked into that as well. So how do you how do you prevent that? So I think the way you prevent this paywall thing is that enterprises have to demand a bit more. you got to demand that it is actually developable by themselves, that I can actually contribute. Give you a good example. Apparently, Apple, one of the biggest contributors to Cassandra, the newest version of Cassandra, a lot of that code comes from Apple itself. And that kind of shows you the dynamic between a large consumer or customer and the vendor. Apple is like, look, there are things we need that we're not going to just wait for you to do all of the work and then we just simply pay for it. Uh, we want to be able to have some skin in the game as well. So I think if you want to avoid a Red Hat paywall or have that change, then I think some customers and some of them are big enough. Like if you're NVIDIA, you probably have skin in the game in terms of what happens with operating systems. So which one do you rally behind? So maybe at some point we see a true enterprise open standard source thing. We don't have that. We got Canonical, we got SUSE, and we got Red Hat. There is no Kubernetes in the Linux world because Linux is a distro. The kernel isn't enough. So I think maybe, you know, I think that I've seen some trends around what does an enterprise distro look like? Do we take CentOS and move it forward? I think Oracle tried it as well. You know, they try to have their enterprise distro as a counter kind of red hat. So I think that's something we'll eventually see because we've seen it in all the other arenas. We see it for databases, we see it for object store, we see it for metrics, observability, not quite the operating system. I don't know if people care enough 
because people perceive operating systems to be free. You go to the cloud, you don't think about operating systems being a part of the cost when you spin up that instance. So I don't know if there's enough big things there to move it, but we did see Terraform get forked. There's open tofu. We did see Bulk get forked this year. So I think there's going to be some counterbalance into the system. And the only people that will step up to do this are vendors who don't need that layer to be a paywall because they're selling a different paywall. Uh, the, uh, le le let me add a bit on uh, the AI part of the question. So I think, uh, so in, uh, from, from my perspective, one of uh, big trends in uh, what's happening in AI world related to networking and open source is that this big uh, AI clusters like like the one that Ch uh, that Microsoft Azure is providing for ChatGPT uh, based on NVIDIA GPUs, that, that one is based using InfiniBand uh, Ethernet technologies, which is good, right? We know ChatGPT works, so this solution is, is good, it works. But uh, there's a challenge with this solution because uh, there's going to be more and more uh, uh, large language model processing clusters and in general large AI clusters. A lot of enterprises will be hosting their own private AI clusters and the current technology requires using this InfiniBand networking and it's kind of a hard for enterprises to have two separate like one networking for InfiniBand, InfiniBand networking and a separate Ethernet networking that's part of the challenge and the other part of the challenge is that uh, with InfiniBand networking, it is hard to share the resources because AI clusters are expensive. You want to be able to like share the resources of the cluster with multiple users. So uh, I think what's happening, uh, uh, an ether, so NVIDIA has announced Spectrum X as their uh, Ethernet-based solution for uh, AI clusters. So basically, kind of new generation of Ethernet solutions will come and replace InfiniBand. Uh, not, not replace, but will be alternative networking foundation for large private AI clusters. And DPU cards, which is like a, you can think about it like a small network switch inside a server. So DPUs are going to play a big role in this story because you need very much a kind of uh, advanced networking because AI uses a lot of bandwidth. Uh, there's a challenge of like properly uh, uh, load balancing the network traffic between AI uh, AI uh, servers. So DPUs are going to be part of it, and DPUs are going to run uh, are, are going to be based on open source software running Linux operating system and some sort of software which will kind of orchestrate the work of DPUs, orchestrate the network configuration, kind of like, you know, the VPC concept, but, but for, uh, for AI clusters. Uh, so this is another trend. Uh, I, I think that this is like part of the reason why HPE is acquiring Juniper, because kind of in this AI race, uh, everyone wants to own the networking uh, part of it. Uh, we're also working hard in this direction uh, with, with, the, with the DPUs and, uh, you know, AI optimized network configurations. Uh, 
for us, uh, of course, it, uh, eventual product would be to make Netris VPC uh, ready and able to provide this kind of AI optimized networking. And underneath, it's you know we we use a lot of open source software. We basically empower our users to to take advantage of using this open source uh, products, but in kind of an easy easy way. On the, I think you were also asking about the software side, like these foundational models, you know, the situation with like Llama 2 versus OpenAI, what happens there? And I think history tells us that just like what we see with like runtimes and compilers and standard libraries, a lot of people are predicting that these base fundamental or foundational models will become the new frameworks, like Next.js is the JavaScript or React Native and these various frameworks. I think it will make sense for most companies to start with the foundational model, mainly because it's going to take a whole ecosystem of players to keep these things trained, updated, and whatever else uh, comes out in terms of maintaining these things. So I don't know, we're probably going to see tens, if not hundreds of these foundational models, and then we'll move on to these kind of uh, purpose-driven models. You see Google just open source their model around geometry, the ability to solve dedicated math problems, and then that will be a dedicated model you will use. So I think a software developer zooming back out will just treat these things like libraries, like we do today, right? I need a library to do this math problem that I have internally or that our customers want to expose to the app. Then great, I will call out to that API, get a generative AI response, and decide if I want to serve it to my customers or not. The tricky part is that this thing starts making decisions. I don't know if we have the framework in place for these things to start making decisions like, hey, I'm going to issue you this refund purely from this generative AI model that could cause <laughs> more problems than reverse. So right now, these things are kind of giving advice and suggestions, but hard decisions. Oh, that one's going to be interesting. But I do think open source from a platform play will dominate because there's just too many players uh, that can't all let one private entity run away with this thing. Uh, we've we've got next question from uh, Berge. Uh, Berge, would you like to uh, to ask a question verbally? Uh, you you're yeah. Now that I unmuted, I can do that. Right. So uh, let me start by introducing myself. Uh, a few partners and myself. We run a company called Wireless Twenty Twenty as a fast growing broadband mapping and business planning SaaS business that's hosted on the Microsoft Azure cloud with developers in Armenia and clients in the US and Canada. I'm wondering if you can identify some of these trends that we should be planning around and how Netris innovation can help us run our business and scale it over time. Sorry to be a bit I mean, self-centered, but I'd like to get a direct answer. Yeah, I like that. That's what you should do. These are roundtables for a reason. Uh, I think when it comes to this kind of thing is I, I view technology as one component in the stack, right? You like you have a large stack with lots of concerns. And so when I work with the Netris team in terms of like the product where it currently is and where it's going, the vision to me is that there should be a VPC everywhere. So you're say you're running an Azure. My guess is you're familiar with their networking stack right? You create the services you want. You probably don't think a lot about low-level networking stuff like 
you know, VLANs and sub, you just probably say, give me a VPC and you connect things to it and off you go to go deal with bigger concerns. The vision would be that that should be true across all environments in which you choose to compute. So if you choose Azure and AWS, I think you can totally do this. They just have different UIs and tools for getting that base networking stuff set up. So, you know, you kind of have that learning curve. And then on-prem, depending on how you do on-prem, you kind of start from scratch. And some people just fall back onto the networking skills they know or whoever they can hire. And then these things just look totally different on how things get done. On the Netra side is at a very high level, wouldn't it be nice if I can think about networking in a consistent way? And this doesn't exist yet, but one thing that me and Alex always talk about is like, where is this product going next? It would be really nice for a networking side of the house to be able to manage all of their VPCs in one place. So I'm using Azure. I want to bring in some on-prem because it makes sense. A lot of these SaaS products, if you get the right customer, they're going to demand that they run that SaaS product behind their firewall. Whether you like it or not, if that check comes in big enough, your whole stance around SaaS changes quickly, right? Microsoft does it. Google does it. More than likely, if you get the right customer, you may have to do it. The last thing you want to do is leave that BPC abstraction behind and start dealing with low-level networking concerns. So at a high level, what Kubernetes is to like containers and compute, I think Netris wants to be to networking, where we can bring this kind of modern-day abstraction to networking and just give people BPCs instead of dealing with all these individual devices and their individual quirks. So I agree with that last observation regarding Netris and Kubernetes. And uh, the more we say those in the same sentence, the better off we are. But um, at the same time, um, our largest clients do run our SaaS service behind their firewall. So there's no doubt that they want to be able to have a cloud-like experience, but in a secure environment in which their data is proprietary. So um, we have to struggle with that all the time and balance those two sets of requirements. But we always deal with what the client wants as the more important thing. Yeah, and I think for a technology company like Netris, even though everyone in the world doesn't use Netris, right? Like that would be great, but it's not the case. So yeah, you as a vendor are going to have to support the wild landscape that your customers live in. But I think going forward, someone has to change the paradigm. And so part of changing that paradigm is working on this problem. It's easy to predict the future if you're working on it. And so I think getting the world to normalize the concept of a VPC is important on-prem so that way we can actually move a bit faster and have a better abstraction for networking. Containers brought it to compute. I think the VPC concept brings it to networking. Alex, do you have any thoughts on my question? Uh, so uh, I, uh, I, I think in... Uh, so... <clears throat> Look, you, you're running in Azure, so your 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 team knows how, how. So your your product is kind of designed to run in that environment. Now uh, it it looks like some of your uh, customers are running uh, like a private local version of the same product somewhere else, like in their own like air gap environments. Is that kind of the situation? Yes. So yeah, that's a. Uh, 
uh, lo lo a lot of customers that we work with, they, they, they have the similar situation. So basically their, their team, their workflows, their product is designed for a cloud native world, but they have the need to host these applications on-prem, at the edge, in air gap situations, on air, I don't know, an aircraft carrier or in a, in a physical building, whatever. Uh, they don't want to change their user experience. They don't want to change their workflow or tools that they are working with the infrastructure. They want to continue using the same cloud native tools. And this is where Netris abstraction helps them out. So on customer facing side, we give them very similar uh, API and user experience compared to uh, cloud that they were also using, that they are also using. On the back end, we take care of that detailed, uh, you know, network configuration of deep networking stuff. So we sort of abstract that away. I think this can potentially be a good fit for your uh, for your use case too. And if if you're uh, if if that's so, we maybe we should have like a additional conversation around this. We will be happy to show the technology or consult your uh, engineers uh, to help them make a decision whether Netris can potentially be helpful in their use in your use case. And since our engineers are in Armenia, that might be convenient. Uh, yeah, if they can make uh, like uh, Armenian evening, Californian morning hours, I'll be happy to join on a call with them. So like, uh, you must know how to do that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Next question. Uh, if you don't uh, mind, I have a small input uh, regarding your question, Perge, about um, what 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 is being <clears throat> what is the problem when you use Netris and you also have your cluster of firewalls, for example. Um, using Netris in no any way uh, is a problem in that case. I had a luck using Netris in a data center environment. And what we did is that we used Netris to automatically configure all the data center networking, but kept the existing 40 gate, 40 gate firewalls clusters in place. So it, that cluster was being used for out-of-band management network. And uh, parallel in parallel to that, we were using Netris. So, Netris is just an additional layer, additional helping hand to the existing networking. I mean, if you want to use network, that doesn't mean that you need to get rid of your existing firewalls infrastructure, for example. Yep. Thank you. Uh, and more, more questions? Uh, I had a quick one, uh, and since we spoke about uh, Kubernetes and uh, VPCs being, uh, you know, like a way to achieve a similar abstraction for networks, um, I want to take that conversation a bit further and say, uh, how uh, how does everybody think about Google Anthos, uh, which is sort of like a, a unified control plane to manage clusters uh, across the cloud and on-prem? Uh, do we see anything like that? Uh, you know, any of the cloud providers doing that or uh, Netris specifically 
being able to not only manage the on-prem VPCs, but sort of bring uh, the cloud VPCs into uh, its its control plane purview. You know? Yeah, you know, I worked on Anthos a bit when I was at GCP, and the goal with Anthos originally was to take GKE, the Google Kubernetes engine, and move it and bring it available outside of cloud. And so it, there was like a pure software approach, meaning, and I remember the first release of Anthos was literally like, you have to have VMware. Like, go get VMware, you have to have it. And then Anthos will use the VMware APIs to install Kubernetes in a similar way that we did in GCP. Because in GCP, the Kubernetes control plane, GKE, assumes infrastructure as a service, meaning we assume you already have VPC, we assume you already have a way to provision VMs, and then GKE picks up from there to give you Kubernetes. So this is why when Anthos was first released, it's like, yo, we need IaaS. And the best IaaS at that time was VMware in terms of predictability and experience expectations. And so when you think about what the Netris goal is going to be, and in some ways, VMware has a VPC, if you think about it, like if you set up everything correctly and you set up all of their tools, when you create a VM, you just got attach it to some network and you get an IP. Like that works. Uh, the problem with that, though, is if you try to do anything outside of the VMware ecosystem, then good luck with that, right? It's like, uh-oh, you know, bringing up a new bare metal server outside of that situation, who knows what's going to happen or is it even going to work? In the Netris case, the goal would be just like we do in cloud. VPC is a standalone thing that everybody can use, kind of like the internet, right? This virtual private network is the center of where all of it happens. When I worked at GCP, one thing that made it different than AWS was VPCs was a global construct in GCP. So once you set up a VPC, Australia could ping US East. And so it became this flat thing. So if you think about it from that perspective, Netris's use cases get a common interface for the entire network. You got two physical data centers, get Netris in there, create one VPC, and then now you have a common interface between all the other things. You want to launch the VMs, connect to that VPC. You want to have a Kubernetes cluster, configure it to use some subnet from the VPC, and then maybe even use some of the Netris integrations there. So that's kind of the approach. So I think Anthos is now all uh, more of an all-in-one. Let us do everything, right? So there are some Anthos installs where you can say, just give me bare metal and it will start via SSH and then try to rebuild the whole stack as an island, which if that's your use case, that's perfect. But I think Netris is more about saying, let's zoom out here. And for customers, and again, it doesn't exist today, but the thing I would like to see in the product is, let's say you're starting out on-prem. I'm really big on brownfield use cases because a lot of people are already in business. They've already made decisions. Expecting everyone to start over is not really rational. But if you said, hey, listen, I have on-prem and I really do want to have a better VPC abstraction because we're thinking about some Kubernetes. We're thinking about some other things here. All right, so now we have VPC on-prem. We could do some nice things. Now the team wants to go to Azure. And I can definitely learn Azure's networking constructs, but man, it will be really nice if I can just say, Netris, configure my VPC. And what does that mean? Do not overlap subnets, right? We can't overlap. There's so many little nuanced things that you have to take into account when you're doing networking in the cloud that you can't ignore if you expect to be able to talk safely back on-prem. 
So this is where I would like a universal control plan to say, hey, wouldn't it be nice if I can manage VPCs in the cloud and then things like Direct Connect, bridging these things become much easier because I can do it in one control plane. Like to me, that would be really beneficial. That would be a really nice vision. And last thing I'll say here is when we set up the partnership with Equinix, you go to Equinix, you click a bunch of buttons, you get some bare metal stuff and good luck with the networking, right? Machines can ping each other. But when you say Equinix with Netris, you get a VPC. So now the machines just get attached to a VPC. You want to install Kubernetes, great. Just pick a subnet from the VPC. Now it starts to feel a lot more like the thing you had in cloud. So, uh, so this so this VPC layer uh, implements things without making conflict. Like we we, we have this internal joke uh, in inside Netris when we when we write down uh, a user story for developing another uh, new feature in Netris for our developers. We we add at the end of the user story: "Do not create bugs." So this this is what what VPC does, but automatically it, it configures your stuff without creating bugs, <laughs> because there's no humans. It's all you know algorithms doing this. Uh, five minutes left. Uh, I guess we can take one more question, uh, or we can take one of the offline questions. Uh, I'll go through some of the offline questions unless someone raises their hand here. And so uh, we got a, how does the acquisition of D2IQ IP by Nutanix affect the market for your product and others in this space? So for those that don't know, D2IQ used to be called Mesosphere. They made a big bet on Mesos, which is like a application orchestration engine based on Mesos. They did a lot of stuff in the data realm with Spark and Hadoop, and they had their own distribution. Kubernetes came in and disrupted them big time. And so they eventually made their own pivot to Kubernetes themselves, hence the name change from Mesosphere to day two IQ, which was kind of like doubling down in the Kubernetes ecosystem, making their own pivot. Uh, that pivot, you know, obviously didn't work out. So them being acquired by Nutanix, I'm sure a lot of you know who Nutanix is. It's kind of that hyper-converged hardware so if you think about VMware and Dale got together and did a thing, what would you end up with? You end up with something that looks like Nutanix. I think the challenge with Nutanix also is that I think they automated the existing world and they didn't see this thing like Kubernetes and new abstractions coming, right? So this all in a box making hyper, hyper uh, virtualization and hypervisors easier to manage and use is very different than introducing new abstractions. So maybe their all in the box approach gets better by bringing in support for things like Kubernetes and UIs and some of this cloud native stuff, maybe that goes somewhere. Uh, but again, I am really big on fundamentals. Storage benefited a lot from S3 existing. And now we have tools like MinIO that can give you an S3 protocol. If you just want to host your S3 in Amazon, you can, but there's benefit in like in innovating at these individual layers to get the best protocol possible. And so I still think that they're going to stay in that hyper-converged play. You know, maybe, Alex, you can speak to a world where if I was a customer and I wanted to manage my VPCs across all these different stacks, these different solutions, how does this fit in? 
I guess I come from the Unix world where I do like my layers to be a little bit independent and abstracted. I was, you know, I didn't grow up in the mainframe era, so hyperconvergent wasn't as appealing to me uh, versus having clean protocols that connect well together. And I think that's just the area that um, that Netris plays in. Awesome. Uh, uh, so thanks everyone. I guess we're we're at time. Uh, thank thanks everyone for for joining. Uh, if anyone has any follow-up questions, any feedback, any ideas, or, or just want to chat about anything, feel, feel free to reach out to us. You can, you can always join our, our Slack channel, that's netris.io slash Slack, and you can meet a lot of people running infrastructures around the world, uh, and, and you can uh, chat with uh, our team members, myself, all your questions are welcome. Uh, Anytime. So thanks everyone. Uh, thanks Anna for organizing uh, this event, and we will be emailing you the recorded version uh, of this. Um, and I look forward to seeing you next time in one of other upcoming roundtables. Thanks Kelsey. Thanks everyone.